Well, we began worship this morning by lighting the second candle for the season of Advent. And that means we have just two more, Christmas, uh, two more Sundays in our countdown to Christmas. But since Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday this year, that one means we have just one Sunday between now and December 24th. And on December 24th in the morning, we will celebrate the fourth Sunday of Advent. And then in the evening, we will have our two Christmas Eve services. Now, this Advent season, we are exploring some of the songs that Scripture tells us precede and surround the birth of the Christ child. This morning, our focus is the song of Mary. And let us make sure to note that the title of her song is not Mary Did You Know? I have seen some articles, many articles, in fact, that take issue with the lyrics of that song. One writer even calls Mary, did you know, the, quote, least biblical Christmas song ever. Because, and I quote, if you reeled off the 17 patronizing questions contained in the lyrics to the real Mary she might have thrown a rock at you because she was a tough cookie. Now, because this has happened to me in the past, I suspect that the writer of that article may have had a few too many cups of coffee that morning. But I do agree when he says, the real Mary, who tramped heavily pregnant 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem to give birth in a stranger's home and then hauled her child 400 miles to safety in Egypt while well, she was not one to be trifled with. Amen? <laughs> the lyrics of Mary's song that are recorded for us in Luke 1, 46 through 55 are traditionally known by their Latin title, the Magnificat, because the first words of Mary, uh, Mary's song is, my soul magnifies the Lord. And remember that as we learned last Sunday that, that Mary does not sing this song immediately after Gabriel visits her and tells her that she's going to bear God's son. Mary's song is actually sung in response to the first song of Christmas, sung by her relative Elizabeth, the Ave Maria. And so it's that song by Elizabeth that elicits the Magnificat. But let's fill in a few more blanks. After Luke begins by telling us of the miraculous pregnancy of Elizabeth, not Mary, Elizabeth is first, Luke then tells us that God sent the angel Gabriel 
to a young woman living in the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Now, the village of Nazareth is, uh, it was in the uh, shadows of a, a much bigger city, uh, Sephoris, which is about three miles away from Nazareth. And so, by contrast to Sephoris, uh, Nazareth is a speck of a city. Uh, maybe it had 200 uh, residents, maybe even less, maybe 100 residents. And so one author describes Nazareth as the low-income housing project around Sephora. Now, we do not know Mary's precise age, and it could have been 15, but some scholars will tell you that they suspect it could have been as young as 12 or 13. Since that was the age back then, that young women would become betrothed. Now, why is that such a young age? Well, because it was and still is around this time that girls enter puberty, becoming physically capable of bearing a child. And Luke tells us that Mary was indeed betrothed to a man named Joseph who very likely was twice or more of Mary's age. Again, in that time and in some cultures still today, a father would arrange his daughter's betrothal to an adult male who would essentially take over ownership as that was the definition of a biblical marriage. So I get a little tired when I hear people talking about biblical marriage because I don't think we want to support that type of biblical marriage, even if it does give us a beautiful story around this time of year. And so Mary is an adolescent from an insignificant town, in an unimportant province, uh, in an enemy-occupied territory within the vast Roman Empire. So there is nothing about Mary that would lead anyone to suspect that she could play a vital role in God's enterprise of salvation. Nonetheless, the angel Gabriel tells her of of this divine scheme and at the same time revealing to Mary a great deal about her son. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then jumping ahead just a little bit, Mary ultimately consents, saying, here I am, a servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Now, have you ever stopped to think about how many other people Gabriel might have visited 
with that same invitation who did not say yes? I think it could have been a lot because I think a lot of us say no to God's invitation. But it is immediately after Mary says this yes that that she sets out on an eight or nine day journey to visit her cousin Elizabeth in the village of Ein Karim. And it is following Elizabeth's greeting that Mary herself begins to sing. And in reality, the lyrics to Mary's song, while her song is something of a cover, of a much more ancient song, recorded in the Old Testament, where a woman named Hannah becomes pregnant and bears uh, the great priest Samuel. And when Hannah finally conceives, you know, one of these, it's another one of these stories where the, the woman is barren, and yet she conceives. And, and so when she conceives and, and gives birth, 1 Samuel 2 tells us that her heart was so full of joy that she breaks out into a song extolling God's greatness. By the time of Mary, Hannah's song, like so many of the psalms that we find in the Old Testament, well, they would have been learned by those children by heart. Much as we learn, Jesus loves me, this I know, right? We, don't even, we didn't read it to learn it. We just learned it. But what I think we tend to overlook is how very disconcerting are the lyrics of the Magnificat. In a couple of places, I've read that in the mid-1990s, the repressive government of Guatemala actually banned the public reading of the Magnificat because it was considered too revolutionary. The Song of Mary can be divided into two halves. In the first half, uh, Mary focuses on what God has done for her. And in the second half of the song, she focuses on what God is doing through her. So I just want to look at a couple words in the first half of the song before we go on to the second half of the song. So first, in in verse 48, Mary testifies that God has looked with favor upon her lowliness. In Greek, uh, that word uh, can be translated uh, also as powerlessness or also as, as least. And and the word literally means as low to the ground as you can get. And I thought of laying down, but I figured I'd have a hard time getting up in my all. But that's what it means. Mary is saying that even though everyone considers her to be a low life, on the same level as dirt that God has looked with favor upon her. Or more literally, God has 
elevated her. You know, in Matthew 18, verses 2 through uh, 4, uh, uh, Jesus places a child on his lap and says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever takes the lowly position is greatest in God's kingdom. We should never pass over those words without recalling the truly wretched circumstances into which Jesus was born. If Jesus were born today, these crushes would probably be a dumpster behind the 7-Eleven. The second word to note in the first part of the song is, is, is the word mercy in verse 50. And in the Greek, that word is elios. But, and it can also mean concern or care or compassion. But of course, you know, Mary would have learned this other concept, the Hebrew concept that's closely related is the word hesed, God's hesed. Because in the Old Testament, hesed refers to God's unwavering love and kindness and pity and mercy. The Bible so often speaks of God's, has said God's compassion for the least and the last. Does it not? And this is one reason that we Christians offer for our faith that Jesus is God incarnate. Because like the Hesed attributed to God in the Old Testament, Jesus also favors the low lives with his acts of mercy. Well, let's move on to the second half of the song where Mary magnifies what God is doing through her. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their throne and lifted up the lowly. There it is again. He has filled the hungry with good things and he has sent the rich away empty. Can I just confess that I have a real temptation to try and soft-pedal these words. You know, I've served in La Jolla and in Coronado and in Tustin and now Santa Barbara. These are, these are revolutionary words in contexts like these. And these lyrics just touch on themes of God's salvation that run throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Mercy to the poor, judgment upon the wealthy, honor for the lowly, catastrophe for the proud and the powerful. These are the themes that Jesus incarnates in his life and teaching. And so I, I really don't want to treat Scripture disingenuously, even if as we go a little further, it might cause us some discomfort. But I have a feeling that you're up for this. 
And so a colleague of mine observes that the lyrics of Mary's song testify that, quote, God is actively engaged, engaged with those who show mercy to others and is actively working against those who do not. Scattering the proud is a reference to those who think of themselves as my, more, more highly than they ought. Many of you can quote scripture even though you may not know you're quoting scripture. Let's give it a try. It comes from Proverbs. Pride goeth before the... Bringing down the powerful from their thrones forecast that cruel and merciless leaders, especially those who covet authoritarian power, in order to crush those they think are their enemies, rather than to lift up the lowly, that they will eventually meet the strong arm of God's justice. But it's this last lyric, it's the last lyric I think that's the most unsettling. Uh, God has sent the rich away empty. You know, many of us may not feel rich. I mean, and I hope this is true, I don't think any of us uh, own a, a, a mega yacht that, that we jaunt around the country in or, or around the world in, but we are, by global standards, so incredibly wealthy. And so this Magnificat ends on a note that we would probably rather not here. As Luke 4.18 tells us, Jesus' first sermon begins with these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor. The gospel is not good news if it's not good news for the poor. Friends, you know, we may have strong disagreements in our country and, and even in our churches about, about what this means, about how caring for the poor is best accomplished, whether it's, it's through private citizens or, or charitable institu institutions or... or or government programs. I don't think Jesus would oppose any of those if it's showing compassion for the poor. And this is what we must not forget, that if our faith is not compassionate, in fact, if it is brutal, and denigrates the poor and needy, then we have become totally unmoored from Scripture and we are far away from Jesus. So it begs the question, do we trust and affirm what Scripture tells us, 
that Mary actually knew about her son. 